Welcome to Animal Airwaves Live, our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. I'm Dana Hill. So glad you could tune in here for this episode on Friday, December 3rd, 2021. And I'm happy to welcome back to the program today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine, Dr. Karen Plummer, a veterinary ophthalmology specialist. And we're going to be talking today about demystifying your pet's eye examination, what to expect. So let me welcome you back to the program, Dr. Plummer. Glad to have you here. Thank you, Dana. It's a pleasure. Well, you know, I think about eye exams in the same way that probably many people do from from my own experience getting an eye exam, which I probably should do more often than I do. But nevertheless, when I do, it involves, you know, going in and having a doctor look in my eye with some sort of uh, light and then giving me a series of kind of, I don't know, optometric measurements of my eyes to see how I'm doing. Part of that is probably not what our pets get, at least in terms of I mean, our pets don't wear uh, glasses, so they probably can get by without that part of it. Uh, but m- much of the eye exam uh, probably does involve just checking on the general health of the eye. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and a lot of the same tests that they do on you when you go to the optometrist or the ophthalmologist, we do to our veterinary patients as well, just in a slightly modified way. Um, we don't routinely measure their what's called their refractive error, which is essentially the prescription that you would need if you need corrective lenses, because dogs and cats don't they don't see quite the same way that we do, and they don't see the same degree of acuity or sharpness, and uh, they also don't need to read the paper or drive the car. So um, their their need for perfect correction is not is not common. Yeah, we need to change that very often. Yeah, but much of the uh, the health of the eye is determined via other means than the kind of machinery that a human would use to, in order to to have that kind of what did you call it the refractive uh, correction? What is Correct. that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. So when you're doing an eye exam on an animal, what are you looking for? Well, most of the time, so there's two reasons that an animal would be presented to an ophthalmologist generally. Usually it's because the pet is experiencing some sort of eye pain. So they're squinting or they've got discharge or the eye looks red or cloudy, or the animal is experiencing some sort of visual difficulty. Um, So when we are presented, we'll take a detailed history and figure out how long things have been not quite right and what the owner's experience has been, what they've noticed with their pet and things that have changed. And then we'll do a series of tests that evaluate that animal's capacity for vision. Do they see or not? Do they have light reflexes that will tell us whether or not the structures in the eye that respond to light, the retina namely, uh, are functioning appropriately? Um, And then we'll do things like look at their tear film. Are they making enough were they making good quality tears? And then we'll measure the pressure inside the eye, which is routinely done when you go to the optometrist or the ophthalmologist. Okay. And then yeah. um, in lots of instances, we'll actually dilate their eyes, just like uh, you'll get dilated when you go, uh, just so we can get a better look at the back of the eye and see how the 
retina and optic nerve are doing. Yeah. Okay. So maybe what would be helpful is to talk a little bit about the anatomy of the eye. So when we have our conversation right now, uh, I'll be on the same page because I feel like I don't know enough about the parts of the eye and their various functions, given that I use my eyes every day. Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, the kind of classic analogy when you think about the eye is to think about it like a camera. So it has um, a clear windshield on the outside, which is our cornea, and that's a protective, prevents things from the outside world from damaging the sensitive structures on the inside of the eye. But it also is, acts like the lens, so it focuses a little bit of light in the inside of the eye. And then we have the front anterior chamber and then the iris, which is the colored part of the eye. For us, it's either blue or green or brown. For our pets, it's generally the same color, but most of the time it's varying degrees of brown. Um, the iris is the structure that has, it has muscles in it that contract and um, dilate. So that acts like a little aperture. Our pupil is the, the hole in the center of that iris. And that acts like a camera shutter. So it controls the amount of light coming in to the eye. And then behind the iris, we have the lens. And that acts like a fine focus. So it focuses light that's coming into the eye onto the retina. And then the retina in the way back of the, the eye acts like the film in the camera. So that's actually going to take that light information and transform it into an electrical signal that goes to our brain. And then our brain says, voila, you are seeing this image. Now, when we have a problem with our eye, we might have a corneal ulcer. We might have some edema or some sort of pigment on the cornea that makes our windshield dirty. We might have a problem with our lens, making it cloudy, dirty, kind of, um, you know, what happens with, with people essentially as they age, they'll develop cataracts and dogs and cats can develop cataracts as well. That prevents light from being focused onto the back of the eye. And then our retina that responds to light, that's in the way back. Um, we can have things like retinal detachments or hemorrhage uh, or even just atrophy of our retina that happens over time because of disease or because of aging. And those are the sorts of things that we'll um, evaluate and look for, particularly if we're having uh, a visual deficit. Now, you mentioned early on that typically you're seeing animals that are experiencing some sort of eye pain or visual difficulty. We can talk about those individually in just a bit, but I wonder... Are you examining animals ever that are not believed to have either of those? That is to say, let's say an animal's coming in for just an, an annual examination. Is a veterinarian checking the eyes then? Yes, absolutely. I, you know, I'm a specialist. All I do are, are eyeballs. But any pet that goes to their general practitioner, their family veterinarian, uh, for their annual exam, um, their veterinarian may not do all of the tests that we have available in our arsenal. They may not deem them necessary. But they will do a cursory exam uh, of the eyes to make sure that they look bright and shiny and healthy and clear to make sure that there's no um, excessive discharge that's present, to make sure that the eyes don't look red, to make sure that that little bit of haze that you're seeing as your dog gets to be 7, 8, 9, 10 years of age is a normal aging process in the lens that's called nuclear sclerosis as compared to a cataract. Um, they'll also just do a, you know, a simple few exams with a light source to determine whether or not 
the animal has light reflexes? Uh, do the pupils constrict in response to light? Do they respond to menacing gesture? In some instances, if there's concern for whether or not an animal's particularly well visual, they might put them through a little maze uh, in the exam room or on the exam table. So yes, part of a, a normal annual examination should include um, looking at the eyes and making sure that there's not something of concern. And certainly if they, the family veterinarian were to notice a problem, say that the eyes look a little bit red or that they've got some mucoid discharge, in those instances that would warrant further investigation and some tests to maybe evaluate how healthy the tear film is. Dry eye is very, very common in dogs, and it's very, very common in people as well. Yeah. Okay. So there's a, there's a lot here. Now, when you say uh, to test, you you do a sort of menacing gesture. Uh, is that what I think it is? You sort of just like uh, rapidly approach the eye with with some object or something to kind of see how the animal reacts. Yeah. Yeah. So we we can't ask them. Do you you know how many fingers am I holding up? Um, we can't ask them to look at the little eye chart and say, do you see this big E or not? Um, we have to use sort of indirect clues. So we do a menacing gesture. It's a hand gesture. You know, we certainly aren't going at them like we're we're going to attack, but they shouldn't expect your hand to come towards their eye. Uh, and the normal response if they see that presence moving towards them would be to blink. So they should blink their eyes in response to that and maybe move their head away from that gesture. But you do have to be a little bit careful with when you do that because if you were to touch the little vibrissae, the little eyelashes around any of the hairs around the face, or if you waft a big puff of air towards the eye, then you're testing sensation, not necessarily vision. Ah, I see. So here's a question. At, at what age, you know, are these animals getting their first eye exams when they're quite young? And if so, why would you find very many problems in a young animal, a, a puppy or a kitten? Well, not fortunately not. Um, they certainly can have, you know, kittens get um, all sorts of infectious forms of conjunctivitis. So it's not unusual for a kitten that has an upper respiratory disease, a little infection there to have some conjunctivitis. That's very common. Um, that might require some treatment, some supportive care, just to make them a little bit more comfortable until they get over that, that little transitory infection. Um, but most of the time, young animals, unless they are silly and get into a fight or get hit by a ball or, or encounter, you know, it's um, pretty common for us to see puppies that get cat claw injuries when they are introduced to a new home that has an established cat. Um, so those sorts of things are more common in young animals. But the majority of the patients that present for actual ophthalmic problems are middle-aged to older. Yeah, right. And, and it's funny because uh, you mentioned earlier, you know, the efforts that you have to undertake in order to gauge, you know, how well an animal's eye is doing and, and how this can be challenging given that these are animals that cannot communicate with us verbally. And I think about how I have on occasion seen small children wearing eyeglasses. And that has always stood out to me because it must be so challenging to do an eye exam on a child. And granted, that is for um, eyeglasses. But nevertheless, means have been 
you know, adopted to, to achieve the desired goal, which is to, you know, help someone's vision. And even in small children who can't communicate probably very well, whether or not um, they're seeing as well as they ought to, um, you know, eye doctors are able to do this. So veterinarians have probably come up with all sorts of clever means by which to determine the health of the eye. Yes. Um, uh, so, so some of the same, you know, principles and, and, and things apply to pediatric ophthalmology as they do to veterinary ophthalmology, you know, distracting a patient or, you know, giving them a toy or a treat or something like that to kind of give you time to gather some data um, that some of the same, same sort of practices apply. Um, but yes, it is, it is considerably more challenging when you, you have a patient either human or, or non um, that doesn't necessarily understand or um, want or is able to cooperate for sure. So our, we have limited kitty minutes, if you will, um, in, in order to do our exam. So being patient, being kind, um, taking our time and recognizing that, you know, we might need to come back and get more information at a later date to make a, a thorough assessment. Yeah, right. And that's got to be frustrating, too, for the pet owner who's brought in this animal, who's the animal might even be experiencing some kind of distress. Uh, and, you know, it, it uh, understandably, no, nobody wants someone poking around the eyeball. You know, that seems to be a pretty sensitive area. Uh, and you know, this is something that well, I mean, you see it all day long as part of your job. And I mean, do you ever have these sort of challenging cases where an animal is especially resistant to exam? We do, but, you know, believe it or not, actually, it's it's unusual. Most of the time we can get the information that we need. Um, just, you know, being patient and, and recognizing that we have, you know, a little bit limited amount of time to be able to, to get that data in. But um, believe it or not, you know, unless they are excruciatingly painful because they've got a really deep ulcer or maybe they've got a puncture in the eye or the the pressure inside the eye is really, really high. They've got glaucoma. Um, most of the time we can get enough information to make a diagnosis and, and initiate a treatment plan. Well, that, there are yeah. exceptions to the rule. I'm thinking of this one particular small dog that um, held his owner hostage <laughs> when I went into the exam room. There was no touching Mr. Grumble's um, he was sitting on mom's lap and, and we did have challenges and struggles trying to treat him. Um, but there he's the exception, not the rule. Yeah. Well, uh, that's good to hear because we want our pets to be healthy and that includes eye health as well. This is a place where we're going to take our first break. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFT-FM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is veterinary ophthalmology specialist, Dr. Karen Plummer. We're going to take a little break. We'll be back right after this. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Animal Airwaves Live on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. This is our weekly hour-long show devoted to the discussion of the health and welfare of animals. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Karen Plummer, and we're talking today about demystifying your pet's eye examination, what to expect. And Dr. Plummer, one of the important things to remember about an eye exam for pet owners probably is that it, it is, in most circumstances, non-invasive. Can you 
Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. So the first thing that we're going to do when you bring your pet to us or to your family veterinarian to have the eyes evaluated, we're going to do some indirect assessments. So we'll do our little menace gesture. We'll shine some lights to establish whether or not the pupils constrict in response to light to determine whether or not we have a, a normal, what we call a dazzle reflex. So they blink in response to light. And those things are are, are non-invasive completely. Then after that, we'll establish some baselines on some of our normal ophthalmic parameters. So that involves uh, measuring the quantity of tears that are produced, which is pretty straightforward. It looks a little bit weird when we do it, but essentially it it, uh, involves taking a little filter paper and placing that between the eyelids. So it essentially wicks tears that have collected um, below the lower lid and that are being produced over the course of about a minute's time. And that we compare that um, measurement of tears on a little filter paper to some reference range standards that we have for different species. And that tells us how much tears are being produced. So because dry eye is very common, we want to make sure that our animal is able to produce adequate amounts of tears. And it's Mildly irritating in some instances, um, but most animals tolerate this really quite well. Um, if if you happen to have dry eye, uh, that's one of the tests that your optometrist or ophthalmologist might actually do as well. It's called a Schirmer tear test. And then after that, if your amount of tears is is adequate, we might put some some special dyes in the eye that evaluate the quality of the tears. Are they evaporating too quickly? Are they um, part of their healthy fraction or the lipid or the mucin in the tears is is absent? That'll help us evaluate whether or not we're producing adequate quality of tears. Again, just involves placing a drop of a, a dye on the eye and then rinsing it away and seeing if we see any residuals of that dye that we've placed on the eye. Oh, well, that, I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, I want to hear more about this. Can you explain how tears work in this, this whole system? And it's obviously critically important to the health and comfort of the eye having tears. But I, I confess that I don't even understand how it works. Yeah, absolutely. So with tears, there are three main components to tears. There is the liquid or aqueous fraction that is produced by our lacrimal glands. And most species have a couple different lacrimal glands. Um, we have a, what's called an orbital lacrimal gland that lives kind of up in the um, kind of uh, the upper portion of the, the orbit where the bony recess where our eye fits. Um, dogs and cats have, an, have that same orbital lacrimal gland, and they additionally have an, a lacrimal gland that's associated with the third eyelid. So they have two glands that are producing essentially the water fraction of tears, the tears that you think about when um, when we cry, we're the only species that has makes psychogenic tears, so in response to emotions. Um, but constantly, all the time, we any animal that has eyeballs is producing tears that lubricate and moisten and uh, clean the ocular surface. It also removes debris. Um, it has some antimicrobial properties, has some um, uh, immunoglobulins and things like that that prevent 
um, pathogens that are in our environment from kind of setting up housekeeping on the ocular surface. So it, it serves um, a protective function, um, but it also provides some oxygen and uh, glucose to the external clear portion of the eye, to our, our cornea. So it's really important to have healthy, adequate amounts of liquid tears. But yeah. the, the water that's in our tears is not the only only thing that's there. We also have um, a little bit of lipid, which is a little fatty component that is produced by a different set of glands that lines our eyelid margins. Um, those are called our meibomian glands. And that lipid helps our, our liquid tears kind of stay put. It prevents them from evaporating too quickly. And there's also a component called mucin, which is produced by our conjunctiva. And that helps kind of stick the liquid tears onto the ocular surface. So we have three things, uh, kind of base that keeps the tears on the eye, the, tear, the liquid tears themselves that do most of the, the work of the tears that we think about, and then an outer sort of fatty lipid layer that prevents the tears from evaporating too quickly. And this process is underway constantly because, constantly. yeah, because I mean, think about it. Think about how uh, bad your day would be uh, if you just weren't creating any tears. And this is a real problem for, for many people uh, and and presumably for our pets as well. The the diagnosis of this involves, as you say, a, a kind of a test for the quantity and, and I guess uh, quality of the tears themselves. Um, what options are available for animals that are having trouble creating their own tears or at least quality tears? Yeah, well, it kind of depends on, on why they um, why they have dry eye. And there are a bunch of different reasons for it. Um, there are some drugs that can cause dry eye. Um, there are um, some neurologic problems that can cause dry eye. If you had a case of facial paralysis or what we call a neurogenic dry eye. But in, in dogs, in particular, the most common cause of dry eye is an immune-mediated or autoimmune condition where the body sort of attacks those glands that produce the liquid tears. And it essentially causes inflammation with those glands, and they're not able to produce their, their product. So they can't make that liquid that's necessary to keep the ocular surf surface healthy. So there are medications um, that can stimulate that the glands to produce more tears, uh, but can also decrease the inflammation in those glands. And the most common drugs that we have available are, are immunomodulator drugs, things like cyclosporin and tacrolimus. Those are the most commonly used dry eye medications in dogs and cats. Yeah. Prior to their um, development, so it, it's an interesting situation, um, Veterinary medicine, oftentimes, we tag along on a lot of the medications that are, are developed for human medicine. Um, this was one of the instances where VetMed got to it first, and we started using cyclosporin for dry eye in our veterinary patients before humans did. And the, um, the classic or the first drug for humans that was developed for dry eye was uh, marketed as a, a drug called Restasis. You might have seen the commercials for it on TV. Certainly. That, that's cyclosporin. And it's the, the same drug that we use in dogs and cats. It's just at a different concentration. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I don't, it, I probably shouldn't ask this when uh, it, it may be just sort of outside your area, but how, I mean, how was it determined that this would, would be beneficial? 
Well, it, it, it was kind of uh, accidental. Um, there were some research dogs that were receiving the drug for um, uh, organ rejection, mm-hmm. to prevent organ rejection, and it was noted, incidentally, that their tear production increased. So it was um, an accidental finding that uh, it was noted that it was it in, these drugs increased tear production. And how is this medication administered when uh, an animal does have dry eye? It's administered topically, so an eye drop to the eye. So when we diagnose dry eye, we're going to give what we call a lacrimose stimulant, so a drug to to increase the amount of tears that an animal is able to produce. But we're also going to prescribe some artificial tears. So we're going to supplement them until we can hopefully get them back to producing more of their normal, good, healthy, happy tears. Okay, yeah, but let's say that you increase the volume of, say, liquid, the just sort of water component. Does it also, at the same time, do these medications increase the creation of lipids and the uh, other uh, component that you described earlier? They do, actually, yeah. Uh, most of the time, the same um, treatment protocols are prescribed for both quantitative and qualitative dry eye. Huh. Well, that's super that it all just works out and the medication works that way. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, so, um, you know, pets will experience this problem and, and probably pet owners will notice it that the animals are experiencing discomfort. How, how would that present in a pet with dry eye? Well, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. With the most common clinical signs that an owner will notice is that maybe the eyes are a little bit more red than they used to be. Um, oftentimes they'll notice that there's um, some mucoid discharge accumulating in the eyes, especially in the inside corner. And that, that happens quite a lot when there's conjunctivitis and dry eye as a form of conjunctivitis. So it results in inflammation in the ocular surface. And when that happens, a lot of times, most commonly people will come in and say, oh, my dog has an eye infection because it has all this green goo. Well, Nine times out of 10, there's not an eye infection present. What they're seeing is an upregulation of the mucus fraction, the mucin fraction of the tears, because the contractive is so irritated. And the body says, okay, I'm not making enough liquid tears. What can I do? What can I do to kind of protect my ocular surface in the absence of these liquid tears? So oftentimes, they'll upregulate the production of mucus. So that green discharge that they appreciate is one of the more common signs of dry eye. So the body's trying to make something. It's just not making the, the kind of perfect solution to having dry eye. So you can have a, a secondary infection because that, that green goop is a great place for bacteria to kind of set up housekeeping, but that's not the primary problem. The main problem is that there's not enough liquid tears that are present. Do these problems come on rapidly or are they kind of chronic and get worse over time? A lot of times they're chronic. Um, In the brachycephalic breed, so thinking about the short-faced, short-nosed, prominent eyes uh, kind of breeds, um, it's exceedingly common to have dry eye or qualitative tear deficiencies in those breeds. And it's a little bit harder to diagnose and or to recognize in the acute phase in those instances because those breeds tend not to have the same degree of corneal sensation or sensitivity 
that some of the longer nose breeds or that we experience. Um, so they might not necessarily say, oh, I'm uncomfortable. They might not rub. They might not act like they're uncomfortable, but they just look a little bit more red, a little bit more discharge. Um, in time with chronicity, their corneas will actually pigment. So they'll grow brown pigment over the surface just because the body's trying to kind of strengthen the cornea and make it less resistant to injury and insult. And part of the way it does that is by trying to turn it into skin. So it makes it um, a little less sensitive to injury and insult. But the problem there is that's that makes our, our windshield cloudy and it makes it much harder for, for a, a dog or a cat to see when they have pigmented their corneas. Yeah. Wow. Okay. This is probably a good place to take our next and last break. I want to remind listeners that this is Animal Airwaves Live here on WUFTFM. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is veterinary ophthalmology specialist, Dr. Karen Plummer. Back right after a break. Stay tuned. Live. I'm Dana Hill. My guest today from the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine is Dr. Karen Plummer. And we're talking about demystifying your pet's eye examination, what to expect. And you mentioned uh, some problems, Dr. Plummer, with the cornea a minute ago. And I imagine that, you know, that sort of uh, darkening of the cornea is not maybe the only kind of problem that can ha uh, be experienced with the cornea. Um, talk about some others. Yeah, corneal ulcers or little scratches or wounds on the cornea are very, very common. That's probably one of the, the more common reasons for a veterinary patient to present to the veterinarian or the veterinary ophthalmologist. And what essentially that means is that the cornea it has, in dogs and cats, it's only about a half a millimeter thick. So it's a very thin structure, but it's very strong and very well organized. And it has this outer protective layer called the epithelium. It's kind of like your outer skin cells that slough and are regenerated all the time. Now, if you have a corneal ulcer, what happens is that you lose that outer layer. And in some instances, you can lose more of the thickness, sometimes even the full thickness of the cornea. So you have a, a perforation. And the most common way to assess that is by placing... Um, a special dye on the eye called fluorescein. And you, you may have seen it um, either at, at your ophthalmologist or at the veterinarian. Um, we place this kind of bright green dye on the eye and then flush it away and see whether or not it is retained by the cornea. And in the normal state, when we have that normal barrier, epithelial barrier, that fluorescein will not stick. It won't stay put. But if you lose that outer protective barrier, fluorescein is going to cling to the inner layers of, of the, the cornea, so the stroma, uh, which makes up the majority of the thickness, which is just very regularly arranged collagen fibers. And that green dye sticking to the cornea kind of delineates or tells us where that wound is, where that defect is. And then we can initiate treatment with antibiotics or growth factors and pain medications to try and support that corneal wound as it heals. Or maybe in some instances, if it's really deep and very fragile, 
we might recommend going to surgery to kind of provide some stabilization there, place a little uh, corneal graft or a conjunctival graft just to strengthen that weak part. I mean, some of these layers that you're talking about must be very, very thin. They're very, very thin. They're angstrom thin. So, um, like I said, normal thickness of a, of a, a dog cornea is about a half a millimeter thick. Yeah. And the epithelium is about it's less than 10% of that thickness. Wow. About 90% of that is just the stromal collagen in the, in the middle. So really, there's there's not a lot of uh, wiggle room here when it when it comes to this stuff. I mean, any kind of loss of these important layers that perform these important functions will compromise the animal's vision, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, superficial ulcers where you just lose the epithelium, those can heal very quickly. And we would expect a small superficial ulcer to heal in a matter of days because there's a lot of regenerative capacity through that outer barrier layer of cells. But the deeper a wound is, the longer it's going to take for the body to regenerate that missing tissue. Yeah, yeah. And and once that once that happens, I mean, once a, a, a deeper sort of wound has occurred, the, the ulcer has kind of been a bit more serious, is that animal's vision permanently compromised? Not necessarily. If it's a large wound or if it's a, a perforating or a ruptured wound, um, oftentimes, yes, uh, particularly if we can't take them to surgery and kind of repair that that wound. Um, but oftentimes they'll heal and they'll he- heal with a little scar, but they might have enough clear cornea around it to be able to be functionally visual. So if that speaks to emer- uh, the emergent nature of a corneal ulcer. If your dog is experiencing acute squinting discharge, or if you notice any kind of gush of fluid coming out of the eye, or if they're reluctant to hold it open, corneal ulcers are really, really painful. The cornea is the most kind of densely innervated. It has more sensory nerve endings in it than anywhere else in the body. So I'm sure you've appreciated when you get a little piece of dirt or an eyelash in your eye, how really uncomfortable that is. Imagine missing some some tissue there and having those nerve endings exposed all the time. Oh, That's it, what a corneal ulcer feels like. It's horrifying to contemplate. I don't even want to think about it. I mean, I, sometimes I shudder uh, just thinking about the idea of, you know, the really the the pain and the it's not just the pain. It's that it doesn't even probably allow you any relief. Right. You can't stop thinking about it if it's bothering right. you. Yeah, exactly. Right. There's nothing like eye pain. Really, it, yeah. it truly is. Right. Remarkable. <laughs> right. I mean, because you might get a bad paper cut and it hurts really bad, but, you know, minutes will go by and you don't think about it. But I bet if you've got a problem with your cornea, um, yeah, it's yeah. you probably notice and, it all the time. Yes, I, I do. I, I actually a couple months ago got a corneal ulcer myself and uh, newfound appreciation for uh, what my patients go through. Yeah. Wow. I mean, did you did you recover? OK, I, I did. Fortunately, oh, good. Good. no problems. But good. um yeah, it was it was very painful. So I, you know, it's it's nice every once in a while to have a reminder. You know, it, it gives you that much more empathy. Can we talk a little bit about cataracts and and how you might go about finding those during an eye exam? Yeah, so it's it's very common for older dogs, any animal over than seven or eight years of age, to 
start to get some cloudiness of the lens. And that's not necessarily cataract. A cataract is when uh, one of the, uh, some of the lens fibers become abnormal. They start to swell. They become opaque. But uh, as we age, the lens, it's still producing new fibers all the time. They just become more densely packed in the center. So it changes the way light kind of goes through the lens, which is that sort of densening or hardening of the lens is not a true cataract. That's just an aging phenomenon, but it can look cloudy. And we can differentiate that normal aging change of the lens from an actual cataract, which is abnormal, by you know, changing the orientation or the angle that we're shining light at the eye. And we should normally be able to see a reflection from the back of the eye when you shine a light in the eye. So I know everybody's, you know, seen a, a nocturnal animal at night and you see that eye shine. Um, what you're appreciating with that when, when you shine your headlights at a raccoon or something like that is you're seeing light go through the lens and hit the back of the eye and bounce back. So you're seeing that shine from the back of the eye. And a cataract's going to obscure that light coming back at you so you don't see that eye shine. So when we do our routine exams on an older animal, we're going to try and evaluate, is this actually a cataract? Is this an opacity or is this a normal aging change? And you should still be able to see that eye shine through an older hard lens that you won't necessarily be able to see through through a cataract. An animal that has nuclear sclerosis is still going to be visual, whereas an animal that has a cataract, if it's a significant cataract affecting you know, a good portion of the lens, they're going to start to have difficulty seeing. Yeah. They'll also dilate the eyes so that we can see more of the lens and get a better appreciation of, is there cataract there? Is it just a normal aging change? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that uh, drop that optometrists and ophthalmologists will put in an eye to open it up a little bit to see inside. Is that something that you use on animals? It is, yeah. The The most commonly used dilating drop is a drop called tropicamide. And essentially what that does is it, it works on the receptors in the iris to, to dilate the, it works on the, on the dilator muscles. We dilate our pupils. So it's transient. Tropicamide lasts you know, between three and four hours. So it's a short-term thing, but it's why they give you the, the dark glasses uh, to wear on your way home when you get dilated. Most of our, our veterinary patients don't have that degree of discomfort when they're dilated and have to go out in bright light. They might squint a little bit, but they don't have to read street signs and try and drive home. Um, so they don't tend to be quite as uncomfortable as we are. With humans, um, they generally will use a different concentration of tropicamide depending on if your irises are lightly colored, like light blue or light green, or a darkly, heavily pigmented brown, uh, because that dye, it binds to the pigments in your iris, and um, it takes longer to dilate a, a dark brown eye than it does a light brown eye. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, now, is there a successful... Uh, is there a possibility for successful treatment of cataracts in our pets? Absolutely, yeah. If if a cataract is developed because of uh, the most common reason cataracts develop in in dogs is um, because of inherited gene defects. Um, the second most common cause is because of diabetes. 
of diabetes causes cataracts. It does in humans too, but usually over a much longer course of the disease than, than dogs. Um, and in those instances, if the rest of the eye is healthy, meaning our retina is functioning, um, the cornea is healthy, we don't have dry eye, we don't have some other confounding condition that would make it harder for the eye to heal after cataract surgery or make it less likely that the animal would be visual after cataract surgery, we can do cataract surgery successfully in dogs and cats. And we do that routinely. We just have to have um, a kind of educated and responsible owner who's going to be a, a, a really good partner in, in the process because I can remove lots and lots of cataracts, but the key to success of cataract surgery in dogs is the post-operative care and, and giving them the medications that they need, the anti-inflammatories uh, and antibiotics that they need to kind of support that eye as it heals after we remove the cataracts. Because what would happen if the pet owner was not as diligent? Maybe the cataract would come back or maybe no, just they, they wouldn't heal well? They don't come back, but they wouldn't heal well. And when we do cataract surgery, we're making an incision in the eye and we're we're traumatizing it. It's, it's surgical trauma. It's planned trauma. We know what we're doing. But the eye doesn't really like to be um, manipulated that way. So it causes some inflammation. And cataracts themselves can cause some inflammation. And if we don't treat that inflammation appropriately, the animal could be painful. It could um, compromise their visual pathways. Uh, it can lead to secondary problems like glaucoma, which is high pressure inside the eye, which is in and of itself very painful. Uh, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up because one component of the human eye exam that I've experienced is some sort of pressure test. And I do not understand how this works. It's I feel like they maybe a little bit of air is sort of blown on mm -hmm. the surface of my eye. And somehow this informs uh, the technician what my eye pressure is. Can you explain what you mean by eye pressure and how it yeah. is that you're measuring this? Yeah, so um, that pressure within the eye, is, it's, it's a closed vessel. So the kind of analogy that I use when I'm describing eye and eye pressure is think about, think about a sink. You have a faucet and a bowl and a drain. And you've always got fluid coming out of your faucet, filling your bowl, and then exiting your drain. And then in the normal situation, your ins and your outs are equal. So you have this constant amount of fluid in your bowl. Well, the eye, it's closed. So if you were to you know, have a clogged drain in your sink, um, you're still producing fluid. That's going to overflow onto the floor and, and cause a flood, and, and it's going to be a mess. The eye doesn't have that capacity. So if you get a clog, clog in your drain, then you're still producing same amount of fluid all the time. It's just not exiting appropriately. So in the eye, which is a closed system, when the volume goes up, the pressure goes up. And we can measure that pressure because there's more fluid on the inside of the eye in this kind of relatively set structure. And that, the more volume puts more pressure on the external tunic of the eye. And we can measure that. It becomes more turgid or more hard, if you will. Yeah. And when you go to the optometrist and they measure your pressure with a little puff of air, which is very uncomfortable, we don't we don't do that in, in animals. We get one shot at that, and, and that was would be about it. I'm I'm sure you've appreciated the 
kind of anticipation, oh, when's the puff coming? When's the puff coming? Um, we measure it with little instruments that are different sorts of what are called tonometers or measures of pressure. And we have um, two methods for doing it. One is called an applination tonometer, where it looks like a little pen, where we essentially put some numbing drops on the eye and then touch this instrument to the cornea. And it measures the amount of force necessary to just ever so slightly indent the cornea. And the more force it requires, that um, registers with a higher pressure inside the eye. The other way is with what's called a rebound tonometer, which is this little instrument that has a little pin in it, and the pin exits the instrument, touches the cornea, and then bounces back into the instrument. And the instrument essentially registers the velocity at which that little pin comes back into the instrument, and that correlates to a different pressure inside the eye. So the faster it comes back, the more rigid or turgid that eye is. And that's sort of what they're measuring when they do the puff of, puff of air. They're, they're measuring the, the backwards velocity of that. In all of what you're describing to me is completely fascinating. And I think that there are, is so much about the, there's so much about the eye that I think many people do not understand in spite of it being this sense and this organ that we use all the time. I mean, it pretty much anybody who has the gift of sight uses uses the eye all day long when we're awake and we receive most of the information that we use to go about our lives through our eyes and our pets, maybe to a slightly lesser degree, just because their other senses are so heightened, that is to say, like hearing or, or smell and so forth. But nevertheless, it's such an important sense to animals, too. And I think the average person knows relatively little about the eye. So it's really good to talk to you and to hear some of this information. And basically, I, I you know, think that maybe we can encourage uh, people who have pets to really consider, you know, getting your pet's eyes checked on a regular basis as part of a veterinary exam. Right. Absolutely. Especially if they're noticing that the animal's exhibiting any degree of discomfort, if there's or more tearing or a, a change in the character of discharge or they see a change in the color of the eye. If it looks more blue or if it looks red, those are signs that they, they really need to have their pet evaluated and make sure that there's not something that's treatable that uh, uh, can be addressed. Oh, well, Dr. Karen Plummer from the U of College of Veterinary Medicine, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I want to say thank you to Sarah Carey as well at the University of Florida College of Veterinary Medicine. And thank you to you for listening. I'm Dana Hill. I hope you'll join me next time for another episode of Animal Airwaves Live. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.